Chapter 2. Things should not always work. 1. Return to the explosive growth of the urban periphery mentioned in the introduction, the low-density territory that is growing so rapidly that it will approach the land area of India by 2050.1 as more and more people migrate to cities and search for cheaper and cheaper land, development streams away from denser centers. This space is now a bellwether of both inequality and climate change, the space to which the disenfranchised are relegated, the destination of some climate migrations, and a settlement pattern that exacerbates climate trends. A time-lapse mapping of Mumbai, Lagos, Mexico City, or Beijing starting at the beginning of the 19th century shows these cities maintaining a relatively stable land area for around a hundred years. In most cases, the first expansions of less dense settlement began at the start of the 20th century, and by 1925, the land area of the city has quickly doubled in size. That steady growth continues into the middle of the century until it dwarfs the original core. After mid-century, the growth begins to accelerate exponentially, both exponentially larger and less dense. Toward the end of the century, the less dense growth really skyrockets, leaving the original dense city as just a central dot in a massive urban formation. Point two in that peripheral soup, consider the individual dwelling on a piece of land as a precipitate of inequality. On one end of the financial scale, the dwelling is aggregating and multiplying as repeatable spatial product, the villa or the McMansion in polycentric suburbs. In his influential book Capital in the 21st Century, economist Thomas Piketty measures the scope of global income inequality, and he demonstrates that, more than land, these sorts of dwellings have become a reservoir of global capital and a visible asset of wealth. Point three on the other end of the scale, not a spatial product but a less privileged form of settlement proliferates, often without sufficient infrastructure to foster health and mobility. Sometimes called informal settlement or auto-construction, it is not without form, but its forms diverge from those used by the planning establishment. Point four these dwellings are sometimes even positioned directly adjacent to their more privileged counterparts, as graphic evidence of the extremes of uneven development. While issues related to inequality and climate change steadily and rapidly worsen, two recent, well-intentioned attempts to grapple with the less privileged dwelling in this mix perfectly illustrate cultural habits, not only the habit of giving authority to financial terms, but the desire for the elementary particle, the new technology, or the radical manifesto. Once again, the comprehensive, quantifiable, emancipatory solution is irresistible. Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto, long an advocate for the world's poor, critiques Thomas Piketty's leftist theories about inequality, arguing that they do not account for the vast amount of unrecorded capital held in less privileged settlements without customary land transaction. Point five. De Soto would like to bring all these assets into what he regards to be a comprehensive capitalist system. He argues that those dwelling outside this system have been denied their rights to enter the free market, and that they should be given deeds to their property so that they can do so. Point six, like many solutions, De Soto's program also finds a galvanizing new technology. Since many social and political challenges threaten to control or corrupt the registry of property for large numbers of people who each own relatively little, assigning property rights might be seen as a data management problem. Given the law of new technology, it is not surprising that De Soto and others would seize on the idea of a blockchain network, an encrypted, decentralized, self-securing ledger using a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or its Ethereum successors. 
a number of researchers and startups are experimenting with blockchain platforms as a means of accounting for properties and other assets of the poor because they promise to construct a corroborating trust network for all of the necessary bookkeeping. The MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative is working with the Inter-American Development Bank to develop an open-source registry for poor farmers to document verifiable assets of equipment. DeSoto is working with a blockchain platform called Bitfury to handle property records in the Republic of Georgia. Chromaway in Sweden, Bitland in Ghana, and Ubiquity in the United States also develop platforms for applications related to Land.7 yet for all its sophistication, some more primitive organizational dispositions can accompany the rhetoric of blockchain platforms as they claim to perfect economic liberalism with the escape velocity of libertarian thought. A promotional video for Ethereum, featuring a white-gray background and a centralized, pulsing, diamond-shaped logo, describes the ascendance of the platform toward Turing complete universality. Ethereum proposes to replace centralized finance, social networking, law, and governance with a multitude of currencies, communication channels, individual contracts, and decentralized autonomous organizations. Everything will be distributed, ad hoc, individualized, and heterogeneous, except their own one, true monistic platform. Another of Ethereum's promotional graphics presents the platform as a frontier in a cartoon desert. Encrypted against both security risk and interference from censorship, surveillance, or regulation, this massive platform for achieving consensus must be allowed to develop with frictionless freedom to provide universality, simplicity, modularity, agility, and non-discrimination. Eight sharing a similar belief in the market, another economic theory offered in the recent book Radical Markets. Uprooting capitalism and democracy for a just society addresses the impoverished dwelling with ideas that are cousins of Henry George's late 19th-century proposal for a single tax system and William S. Vickery's mid-20th-century work on auctions. Countering the power of capital to hold and unfairly benefit from the ownership of land, George proposed to treat land as common property and tax its use for the benefit of all. Vickery's Nobel Prize, winning idea about auctioning value within a pool has informed the practice of congestion pricing among other things. Radical Markets proposes blanket auctions to accomplish the same leveling justice that George sought. Point nine, the book considers a community in Rio de Janeiro where all property, land, buildings, cars, equipment, could be held in common and rents to use all this property could be continually auctioned on smartphone apps until they stabilized at a fair price. In this Vickery Commons, all the rent money would fund public goods and a social dividend. The auctioning would undo the tremendous misuse of lands and other resources. The highest bidder for the most scenic hillsides would never be someone planning to build rickety and dilapidated slums. The highest bidder for central city land would not be the developers of small, ritzy condos but the builders of skyscrapers for the new, vast middle-class auctioning would create. Auctions could save Rio, and the world, 10 radical markets rejects efforts to address poverty with leftist notions of redistributing wealth, right-wing privatization and deregulation, or technocratic notions of international expertise with their targeted projects based on randomized trials. Instead, with the enthusiasm of startup culture, it harks back to Adam Smith, Friedrich Hayek, and Milton Friedman and purportedly offers the best method of large-scale social organization. The book continues to dream of the perfectly equalized dance of the market, recuperating economic liberalism and purifying a granular spontaneous competition that becomes a mechanism of radical egalitarianism. Point 11. 
While blockchains or auctions might be useful tools, the translation of all exchanges into data exchanges or the comprehensive use of financial terms to assign value is also strangely regarded to be more rational and stable when it may be more precarious. Anthropologist and geographer David Harvey argues that a deed only makes it easier for capital to acquire those properties and banish the owner to another unsanctioned urban or exurban space. Point twelve others are concerned that once these properties appear as financial assets, they can become the target of financial games, like the same mortgage-backed securities that caused the 2008 financial crisis. Point thirteen these solutions of economic liberalism are magnetized to the modern mind, an economic liberalism must continue to go through contortions to avoid its own paradoxes. It co-opts philosophical thought about individual freedom to support free markets that typically protect the freedom of one group at the expense of another. And a position that purports to sponsor multiple heterogeneous markets, and even a varied marketplace of ideas, pasteurizes its theories and markets to achieve a magic, universal solution. Point 14 leftist positions are also often in the grips of the modern mind. A sharp leftist critique exposes the paradoxes or illusions of economic liberalism, that, in its essence, it can never offer freedom, fair play, or benevolence. But the habit of declaring only one capitalist market, one your enemy to be defeated absolutely, is similar in disposition to De Soto's declaration of a single capitalist market. A leftist critique guards against collusion. You need not contribute to the violence and hegemony of capital or expect it to do good. But in advance of an ideal scheme for seizing the means of production, how can design introduce extra, rival markets, especially spatial markets where value derives from arrangement and other physical attributes apart from finance? 2. Skipping the romance with comprehensive solutions or ideological utopias, medium design simply encourages many approaches to interplay. Beyond any one metric, like a financial abstraction, a broader, more tangible portfolio of heavy, lumpy spatial variables, freighted with social, political, and environmental values, can be linked in interdependent relationships. Rather than anticipating certainty, a common-sense recognition of contingencies and situated potentials should not always work. Against expectations, indeterminacy makes this interplay more precise and not freedom, but entanglements, make it more robust. Political scientist and anthropologist James C. Scott joins the constellation of thinkers in chapter 1, adding a grace note to the interplays discussed in this chapter. In seeing like a state, how certain schemes to improve the human condition have failed, he argues that imperialist high-modernist planning schemes around the world, from the Corbusier to Lenin, failed in part because they did not incorporate mitties, the practical flexible systems of knowledge that stand in contrast to formal deductive, epistemic knowledge. In an indirect echo of Ryle, mitties, as Scott describes it, is variously called know-how, savoir-faire or arts de faire, common sense, experience, a knack. Like others, he notes that the acquired knowledge of how to sail, fly a kite, fish, shear sheep, drive a car, or ride a bicycle relies on a capacity for mitties. Scientific engineering or universalist strategies obscure that important knowledge that defies being communicated in written or oral form apart from actual practice. And Scott endorses mutualism as expressed by anarchist writers like Peter Kropotkin, Mikhail Bakunin, Erico Molotesta, and Pierre Joseph Proudhon. Point 15 More important than determining an ideal arrangement or ideal modular building block is this mitis, the means to create some movement and interchange between the components of a spatial arrangement that may be suffering from its solutions. 
multiple experiments can run in parallel and spin around different variables. Blockchains, the Vickery Commons, and randomized controlled trials might join countless approaches that foster entanglement. These mixtures of technique and approach do not signal compromise but rather enrichment. The physical materials of the city, the human and non-human mixtures of house, infrastructure, and community that supports dwelling, come with situated values and affordances that can engage economic as well as environmental, social, and political ecologies. The relationships may be supported with data collection or indexes, and they can partner with or learn from the economic engines in any number of ways specific to the context. But the relationships exceed any one currency of exchange or ledger of values. Many affordances in space are made of activities or proximities that cannot be moneyized. And the most sophisticated interplays may even sidestep the single modern author and provide forms for the participation of many authors. The first designs of interplay, appearing in the next section of this chapter, offer specifications for linkage and interdependence between urban properties. They may propose reagents, mixtures, chain reactions, or ratchets that gain leverage incrementally. Any interplay can also be gained, corrupted, or capitalized, it will always go wrong. But different from a one-time solution, interplay is agile enough to remain in play and adjust to changing conditions or moments when it is politically outmaneuvered. The interplay may offer a temporary means to tune parts of the larger urban landscape, but by being impermanent, it is not equivocal or hopelessly flexible, just more direct and deliberately partial. And again, interplay, as an ecology rather than a solution, also offers some additional political advantages, expediences, and accelerants. Spatial changes that do not always declare themselves or appear in lexical or legal registers can sometimes avoid ideological fights with an extra degree of political cover. You do not have to wait for the tabula rosa, the revolutionary overhaul of all systems, or the perfect renovation of political conditions. Some of these interplays might gain scale by piggybacking on repetitive components, from McMansions to the dwellings of auto-construction, in landscapes that they intend to partially overwrite. In the greed-to-conquer space, the most powerful players may have conveniently provided the means to multiply a change and allow it to gain significant scale. 3. Like episodes in an urban clinic, the following examples of interplay focus on the dwelling in urban and peri-urban space. Dropping down very briefly into different time periods and scales, the examples were chosen because they can proceed without master plans, they trade in heavy spatial variables that leverage financial abstractions rather than the other way around, and they create compounding value from the physical arrangement of these spaces. The array of examples is not representative, and it does not attempt to treat the complex issue of urban housing. Rather, it animates the effects of interplay between the components of dwelling and rehearses the practice of designing that interplay. Compare the radical Georgist propositions above with practical workarounds of another Georgist, Ebenezer Howard, inventor of the influential Garden City. Howard's Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform, 1898, was a social and economic playbook for redistributing metropolitan populations and wealth into the countryside. An interplay rather than a master plan, it outlined a means by which city dwellers could live and work in the country in healthier and less exploitative conditions. Edward Bellamy's futurist utopian novel Looking Backward, 1888, Peter Kropotkin's cooperative villages, and George's single tax system were all influences for Howard. But Howard did not adopt the single tax system. 
temperamentally averse to conflict, he wanted to accomplish the same leveling of power without waiting for revolutionary changes to tax systems. He could more practically work with an existing landholding mechanism, the Limited Dividend Corporation. The corporation would purchase the land and issue bonds, and it would be paid back by rents yielding but not exceeding an agreed-upon profit for the investors. Once the bonds were repaid, the renters became cooperative owners. Capital was a temporary means to generate value from arrangements, proximities to employment and community as well as access to green space. Those values and affordances, now sitting on the land, could be managed through collective ownership. Howard's diagrams, like those that might accompany a patent application, expressed a time-released calculus of relationships. One diagram depicted the Garden City idea as a magnet that gradually attracted a population from both the countryside and the city. Another diagram outlined what Howard called the vanishing point of landlords' rent 16 as Howard's quite practical invention traveled and created a Garden City movement, it often diverged from his intentions. Like all of these examples, the idea arguably went wrong. It was sometimes associated with pious, anti-metropolitan sentiment. Or its architecture dressed up in historic styles or other displays of false authenticity that were mimicked in the wealthiest suburbs. But for this discussion, the scheme for leveraging capital and mixing different ledgers of value is compelling. Another example from the mid-20th century is more controversial. The polykotoikia of post-war Athens constituted a runaway form of housing that blanketed the city and accommodated large numbers of new city dwellers migrating from rural areas. The interplay was simple. A landowner agreed to donate their property to a builder and allow their house to be demolished. The builder paid for the demolition as well as the construction of a low-rise apartment building. The landowner got an agreed-upon number of apartments in the building in exchange for the original property. The builder sold off the rest of the apartments for a profit that could be used to finance another similar scheme on another property. Point 17 For some, the Polykotoikia represents a predictable episode of distended real estate speculation. The form was responsible for the sprawling overdevelopment of concrete dwellings in the style of Maison Domino. The single construction technology applied across the whole city was less responsive to, and even erased, some of the particularities of the city. But for others, the polykotoikia is a very suggestive improvisational form reliant on situated values and many bargains executed by many players. Building the polykotoikia was also a form of oikonomia, or housekeeping. Families often allowed the structure to evolve and adapt over time, and even sometimes engaged in the construction process themselves. The polykotoikia has also long been the subject of design invention, since it is an engine of urbanism that gets pieces of the city moving. A design might piggyback on it and use it as a multiplier to carry a change across a population of dwellings. Or, any number of legal adjustments might serve as a governor of this engine to modulate or redirect it, to turn it on and off or adjust any of its parameters. The form inspires what historian Ioana Theokarapoulou has called a new mitis. 18 contemporary forms of autoconstruction in the urban periphery are often much more precarious. At a moment of intense urbanization and climate change, the dwelling that appears in sprawling suburbs or settlements may even be more important as a physical object than as an item in an economic ledger. Impoverished urban settlements, often called slums, present a morphological as well as a political and economic problem. An urban clot of dwellings with no infrastructure makes mobility extremely difficult. 
long walking distances or little access to transit makes travel times to work impossibly long. And physical mobility impacts social mobility. The typical remedy to this lack of infrastructure is often demolition and disenfranchisement to build large urban arterials. Point 19 Global governance organizations like the UN have only recently formally acknowledged and analyzed the consequences of urban morphological and spatial variables. Point 20 And while all of this work proceeds by resolutions and consensus, relying on quantifications and metrics, it is notable that those metrics are measuring not only urban components but relationships between the components. A pledge to study slums at the 1996 UN Conference on Human Settlements led to further data collection about cities, and in 2004, UN Habitat began an analysis of the actual arrangement of cities. The eventual publication, Streets as Public Spaces and Drivers of Urban Prosperity, scored 60 cities based on infrastructure development, environmental sustainability, productivity, quality of life, and equity and social inclusion. An additional composite street connectivity index of the 2004 study compared things like density of streets or intersections. The work has led to initiatives that improve streets in cities or insert them into low-density peripheral development as a means to deliver mobility and infrastructure. Point 21 One of these initiatives addresses a number of conditions, including peripheral fabric with an interplay that recuperates the techniques of land readjustment. First used in Germany in the early 20th century, land readjustment allowed farmers with irregular lots to trade adjacent fragments and regularize the geometry of their fields to gain more usable areas for farming. Germany has continued to use the technique, Japan used it extensively to convert a third of its built area, and it has been used in some form in Australia, India, Indonesia, Spain, Taiwan, and Turkey as well. Point 22 Real estate capital has arguably used conventional land readjustment exploitatively to buy out individual owners whose parcels might form part of a larger municipal project. But real estate capital is often the chief beneficiary in these cases. In a buyout, the seller is left with cash that depreciates in value, and the buyer is left with property that appreciates in value because of infrastructural improvements that are possible after land aggregation. Point 23 But UN Habitat and others are developing versions of land readjustment protocols that are self-financing, cooperatively directed by a number of participants, and reliant on a market of spatial values. In this version, owners allow their land to be aggregated and redeveloped with new uses, in return for a smaller portion of the property that will continue to gain in value. Calling the protocol Participatory and Inclusive Land Readjustment, or PILAR, UN Habitat is experimenting with pilot projects in Colombia, India, Angola, and Turkey that use this engine to convert urban land to new uses, insert infrastructures into compacted peripheral settlements, and reconstitute cities after a natural disaster or conflict. Point 24 Any situation can become corrupted. But, with this form of land readjustment, landowners in a more precarious situation need not relinquish their property to a financial abstraction. Instead, a small group of neighbors pool land for a tangible project. The heavy values and affordances related to proximity, mobility, health, and safety are achieved through an interplay, and the new spatial arrangement is the source of value. For instance, a settlement underserved by infrastructure uses some of their collective land to add a street network that also carries utilities for electricity and water or a community with insufficient open space uses some of their collective land to add a park. 
land readjustment might even take advantage of what urbanists Abdumalik Simone and Edgar Peiters consider to be makeshift negotiations that are already embedded in many dwellings of this sort. Point 25. New arrangements can also reorganize to cope with changing environmental conditions like floods, severe storms, and wildfires. Properties can be densified and repositioned to avoid risky areas. Rather than encroaching on rainforests or jungles, landowners might also consolidate in denser developments near small cities and engage in enterprises that take advantage of the values imminent in sensitive landscapes, reservoirs of water and carbon, sites for research and tourism, and sources for new pharmaceuticals. While there are many obstacles to achieving consensus and salience in land pooling, there may also be accelerants for this interplay. Pillar was used to rebuild neighborhoods after an earthquake in Pahaj, India, and the ordinarily lengthy process proceeded relatively quickly since destruction had already essentially neutralized or aggregated properties. 26 Similarly, climate risks aggregate and index properties in new ways, and they might even establish a timetable that government incentives can reinforce. Or a public offering of infrastructure to be inserted into a pillar scheme may have an expiration date that helps to consolidate negotiations. In the suburbs of wealthy countries, land readjustment can also organize interplay. One organization, Changing Ground, is proposing cooperative land readjustment schemes that buy out the assets of property owners and rebuild with greater density. The co-op owners may use intermediate banking organs, but the real value is not in the financial abstraction, but rather in the new arrangement on the land. And the original co-op owners are the beneficiaries of this new value point 27 these land readjustment schemes can include additional assets from parks to schools to urban agriculture to community scale energy production among many possible ventures increased density that delivers new real estate values also supports higher capacity transportation systems more energy efficient buildings and potentially more diverse neighborhoods since the changes occur in situ, the demolition of existing structures can even contribute to recycled building materials. Point 28 A land readjustment interplay demonstrates how spatial assets can alter economic prospects and even address income inequality. Without risk to the initial investment, this sort of interplay can allow a modest neighborhood to completely recast their existing property. Like the 1% who make most of their money from investment, land readjustment might allow many to escape the precarity of relying solely on wages. The inhabitants' situated value is their heavy portfolio in a spatial marketplace, a physical, tangible field of value. Communities can also design an interplay that uses combinations of land readjustment and protocols like community land trusts. A community land trust is a non-profit that assumes ownership of land in a community, maintains the value of the land, and builds on it for the benefit of a community. When homeowners sell their property, they retain a portion of the sale, while the rest goes back to the trust. Countering gentrification and encouraging stewardship, the trust insulates the community from the spikes and disenfranchisement that often accompany the acquisitions of real estate capital. At least partially addressing the unfair monopoly value of land that Henry George hoped to abolish, a land readjustment interplay allows any participant to generate value in relationships sitting atop the land. Rather than assets being controlled by financial entities with varying degrees of regulation, an owner can physically contribute to the value of that arrangement with maintenance and care. Land readjustment also models what might be called compounding reparations for disenfranchised or abused groups of people. 
reparations, as a one-time settlement for an incalculable harm like slavery or apartheid, is akin to the exploitative use of land readjustment by real estate capital. Cash does not appreciate in value like the newly aggregated land from which real estate can continue to profit. Similarly, cash cannot account for redoubling values that have accrued to capital from free or inexpensive labor over many decades. Compounding reparations invert that bargain and deliver the kind of asset, like property or education, that can provide increasing value. The value can also be enhanced by any individual in myriad ways that do not have to thread themselves through a financial abstraction. Sometimes reparations have been falsely treated as a gift from the enfranchised to the disenfranchised. When that gift comes in the form of space or property, it is inevitably a remnant that the enfranchised are happy to discard. But should the compounding reparation come in the form of already occupied properties or lands, land readjustment offers some tools to recognize, reapportion, or stabilize value and ownership. And it provides ways to reliably and continually add value to that asset. 4. The examples assembled here only begin to uncover a wealth of different mechanisms that might be used in inventive combinations. There is no generalized interplay that can travel the world, but rather an approach to combining ingredients in many different complex contexts. As more examples of interplay appear in subsequent chapters, they begin to point to a larger inventory of approaches, approaches that mix spatial variables with all sorts of tools, metrics, and financial organs. These heterogeneous interplays mix the authority of knowing that, and knowing how. But what are the cultural narratives that would allow these forms to travel in culture? They often do not adhere to the practices of the design professions or the planning bureaucracy. Observations about interplay in space have long been part of urbanists' working knowledge, but favoring only some forms of precision, culture does not regard this work to have the authority of science or economics. More reassuring are quantifiable assessments. Analysis of the city is best received from economists or social scientists in the languages of law or data. Global governance also favors abstracted languages that do not present lumpy surfaces. Strangely, the simple exchange of heavy physical temporal values is somehow too tangible, durable, or visible to carry weight in decision-making. Intergovernmental organizations and global consultancies routinely correlate any innovation to financial indicators. The language used in the last 50 years of World Bank reports reflects a move away from more concrete to more virtual markers of productivity. References to the physical, example, timber, pulp, coal, iron, steam, steel, locomotives, diesel, freight, dams, bridges, cement, chemical, acres, hectares, drainage, crop, cattle, livestock, from mid-20th century reports have, in the 21st century, been replaced with references to financial abstractions, example, fair value, portfolio, derivative, accrual, guarantees, losses, accounting, assets equity, hedging, liquidity, liabilities, creditworthiness, default, swaps, clients, deficit, replenishment, repurchase, cash, point 29 still, social scientists now increasingly consider empirical as well as scientific assessments of arrangements, proximities, and other contextual conditions. Similarly, irrespective of the quantifiable health of an economy, economists can correlate the chances of successful mobility back to place and neighborhood, proximities to trouble, obstacles to work or education, toxicity of water or air, lack of family or collective space, insufficient or unsafe transportation, and inadequate health care, among other things. Point 30 moreover, 
some of the most innovative experiments in economics may inevitably rely on something like interplay as it is discussed here. The randomized trials critiqued in radical markets no doubt refer to the work of Nobel Prize winning economists Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee. Duflo and Banerjee reject master narratives about solving poverty and experiment with randomized controlled trials to discover interdependent factors that impact a specific context. Radical Markets dismisses the trials as technocratic or imposed from above, rather than carried along by individual agency within the market. Yet while those radical solutions return to the one currency, the one multiplier, the one algorithm or quantifiable solution, randomized trials consider multiple situated values with no single elementary particle. Point 31 For instance, Dufflow and Banerjee wanted to test ways to encourage immunizations that counter poverty. Mothers might not have the time to walk all the way to a clinic only to discover that the nurse was not there. So the trial that Dufflo and Banerjee devised combined the obstacle of the walk with the benefit of both extra food and longer hours from the nurse. Given an immunization clinic serving a number of villages in an area of about six miles, they discovered that parents were more likely to make the walk if there was a small incentive of a two-pound bag of beans. More visits delivered economies of scale. And the nurse, whose salary was already paid, was now continuously serving a greater volume of patients more cheaply and efficiently. Point 32 Yet while the economists' randomized trials have garnered authority as quantifiable proof of effective tools, does their real value lie, not in the quantification but rather in the exercise of interplay itself? The terms chosen for the randomized trials are arguably based on tacit knowledge, on a hunch. It is not clear whether specialists would have to be dispatched to each unique context to conduct tests and provide proof of consequential factors, factors that would inevitably change. And, in a more grave critique, it is easy to imagine incentivizing all sorts of outcomes. But a broader metacritique asks whether the simple cross-referencing of relationships in a community, whatever those relationships might be, is itself productive. The act of developing interplay alone is changing outcomes. If it is the architecture of interdependence and entanglement that is the real innovation in the approach, the know-how of urbanists provides another kind of common-sense clinical evidence. Some of those relationships deployed in the trial, like walking distance and clinic location, in addition to beans, vaccines, and nursing hours, are spatial. But protocols of interplay are not proofs, and they are designed not to fix an answer. Rather, they provide more security and plausibility by being indeterminate and able to respond to changing conditions. And, as was mentioned in the introduction, while it is generally assumed that designers must wait to be approached by clients with sufficient capital to build, protocols like community land trusts and cooperative forms of land readjustment demonstrate that the opposite can be true. Value begins with physical arrangement, location, community, diversity, proximity to other components of the city, and relationship to landscape, all factors that many designers and inhabitants can continue to shape over time. All the relative positions of all the components in an urban network constitute its value, a value embedded in space. That it might be coincidentally moneyized is less important. For the interplays considered here, it may even be the case that land discarded or neglected by capital has the greatest opportunity to acquire design value. The construction of multiple markets of exchange, as many as there are specific contexts, counters some cultural narratives about a comprehensive system of capital that must either be defeated or entirely retooled. Design bends and inflects many sorts of markets and mutual agreements, 
and it trades many forms of value that may be embedded in spatial arrangement. Like the multiple, changeable stories and obfuscations of the superbug, this indeterminacy and entanglement is a source of messy resilience. Interlude 3. The individual stories of Jane Eyre and Rosa Parks are all too familiar, even though the ability of both characters to occasionally move political mountains remains somewhat mystifying. They are arguably both medium designers often working in the register of undeclared and latent activity. In the novel Jane Eyre, Jane manages, against all odds and within a relatively short period of time, to overcome the punishing oppression of Lowood School at the hand of its director, Mr. Brocklehurst. Jane never squares off against Brocklehurst, but in the course of the novel, the hierarchy is inverted, and Brocklehurst's power rapidly withers. He quickly slinks off stage, and his name is rarely mentioned again. In considering the Charlotte Bronte novel, theorist Caroline Levine's recent literary analysis perhaps surprisingly references many of the thinkers considered in this spatial investigation. Levine's approach to form in literature is sympathetic to the design of form as interplay. Even Levine's brief re-examination of the word form and its range of historical uses, from immaterial idea, as in Plato, or material shape, as in Aristotle, as well as its myriad disciplinary situations, exposes the problems with any narrow use of the term point one departing from both structuralists and post-structuralists, Levine does not classify forms, but borrowing from both Gibson and the design world, she recognizes their affordances that, however latent, have some durability as markers. Beyond forms like a sonnet or a novel, Levine looks for holes, binaries, universals, and rhythms in the composition of work itself, in the social-political context it depicts, and in the social-political context it disrupts as a work of art. In another, Gestalt shift, she is not noting the content of the form, but rather, the forms of the content, two several turning points in Jane Eyre rely on forms of interplay. These forms do provide certainty and fixity, but thinking back to the chemist, they establish potentials in different combinations. Unlike chemistry, politics is reliant on what things can do when they are put together. While she does not reference Jane Bennett, Fall Levine, politics or a political ecology resides in these collisions. Using the two, she also considers networks of interacting components to be forms. And referencing Rancière, she treats politics as a matter of distributions and arrangements. Three initially, Jane Eyre is in an impossible situation, with all power and authority granted to Brocklehurst. Direct defiance or the declaration of grievances would only decrease her power and increase the power of her oppressor. Struggling only tightens the noose. But by activating an ecology of moves, none of which might draw undue attention, Jane gradually begins to create leverage and get the upper hand. She finds affordances in the most meager opportunities, even setbacks. She first becomes an excellent student and transforms the hardened discipline of the school into an asset for herself. And when Brocklehurst falsely accuses her of wrongdoing, an event that would ordinarily be considered a setback, she finds her opening. The accusation offers Jane a tiny bit of leverage. The harm done to her changes the chemistry of authority by prompting sympathizing dissent among the other young women. Those multipliers of Jane's power become a political resource. Jane's temperament and stature are important factors when Miss Temple, Helen Burns, and Jane meet privately in Miss Temple's room. Jane calmly narrates a believable story in her defense, and Miss Temple amplifies that small potential by contacting someone from outside the community who corroborates the story. 
a gathering of the whole school to announce that Jane has been cleared of all suspicion produces the necessary volume of sentiment to overcome Brocklehurst. Jane Eyre, as both novel and character, is a political actor. She continues to find multipliers and cultural collisions, as the novel travels in the hands of its readers through different times and contexts. Although different in content, the story of Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama, in 1955, is similar in the way it shaped cultural, infrastructural, and spatial dispositions. In the separate but equal Jim Crow South, white supremacists constructed a closed loop of power that squared off in a binary fight against African Americans. Parks could not stand in Montgomery's Market Square, where slaves were once auctioned, and demand equality in legal or social terms. That form of ideological activism would have been largely futile, if not deadly. Instead, while it took just as much courage, Parks activated an undeclared urban disposition, and she shifted this potential in the spatio-political matrix to break a loop without intensifying a dangerous binary. At the bus stop near the same market square, with the white Capitol building in sight at the end of the Dexter Avenue axis, she refused to move from her seat on the bus. The activism took the form of an interplay or a political ecology. It was in an active rather than a nominative register. Rancière writes that those who boycotted really acted politically, staging the double relation of exclusion and inclusion inscribed in the duality of the human being and the citizen, for as in Jane Eyre, Parks's arrest, an apparent setback, leveraged an advantage and found a multiplier in the intersection between the transportation company, her body in that potent location, and her fellow black citizens. Her actions moved into position 40,000 black bus riders and 300 cars to support a boycott. In a church on Dexter Avenue near the Capitol, just down the street from this bus stop, Martin Luther King Jr. catalyzed and amplified all these actions by using the boycott to inaugurate the larger civil rights movement. Point five activism of social justice and activism of disposition go hand in hand and are mutually beneficial. The civil rights movement relied on declarative oppositional protest, but it also relied on the precise interplay of corporeal and urban dispositions in Montgomery. Parks practiced medium design, and her performance was not limited to her words and physical movements that day. In terms of disposition, her activism set off a chain reaction of latent potentials that continued to unfold over time in cities across the country. Chapter 3. Smart can be dumb. 1. The driverless car mentioned in the introduction is just one precipitate of the contemporary obsession with anything smart, an obsession that epitomizes cultural habits associated with being right or knowing that. Conforming to default modernist scripts claiming that newer is better, technologies must be successive rather than coexistent. And, at a moment of digital ubiquity, smart attaches to emergent, presumably superior digital technologies. In perennial cycles of obsolescence and replacement, new infrastructure technologies have overwritten existing networks, no matter how sophisticated the incumbents may be. In a confounding paradox, when the modern smart discards or subsumes the previous technology for the new technology, it eliminates information in an attempt to be smarter. It is a closed loop establishing a new smart that, by definition, recreates the old dumb. Masquerading as more sophisticated, it returns to a more primitive disposition. In the U.S. transportation landscape, the same automated vehicle is positioned to lead another episode in a long-standing comedy of errors and cross-purposes. The mid-20th century monovalent highway network replaced a much more finely-grained rail network deemed to be obsolete. 
the false logics of traffic engineering sized highways according to statistics about volume of cars. But since adding a lane of highways only invites more cars, highways were doomed to both continually inflate in size and never relieve congestion. And a morphology designed for long distances with few access points was dragged through a more finely grained urban fabric, a move that was used to justify racially charged slum clearance, disenfranchisement and segregation. But, most important, the car was a multiplier with enormous scale. Apart from the elevator, there are few particles in the urban landscape that have reformatted so many spaces in the world, from highways, to urban and suburban morphologies, to the Earth's atmosphere. And while reliant on a fuel that provokes military conflicts and destroys the planet, car manufacturing is even treated as a key indicator of employment and economic health. The persuasion justifying this cycle of replacement was often about freedom, freedom of the American road. Driving is a slow, dreary, and time-consuming chore performed by gripping a wheel and staring forward at pavement. But, at least in car commercials, it is stubbornly portrayed as a luxury offering speed and the sexy, liberating thrill of rounding curves on wet roads. Modernist scripts about automated vehicles may engineer still more paradoxes, false logics, and myths of luxury. Automated vehicles, AVS, are projected to create a mobility internet, an internet of things in which synchronized digital devices attached to everything will finally make the stiff, spatial world fluid point one again, replacing incumbent networks, new technologies will provide the right answer. Autonomous vehicles are heralded as transportation's magic bullet or the means to perfect driving. In ideal projections of a fluid, smart, digital world, AVS inefficient platoons will save fuel, reduce emissions, and increase both productivity and accessibility. Point two summoning a recurring dream of uninterrupted movement, AV simulations feature stoplight intersections where cars never have to stop and wait, but rather slip past each other in a perfect corpuscular flow. These visions seem to be missing a simple calculation related to size and volume of vehicles. If AVS are sold like individually owned vehicles and used in lieu of transit, the number of cars will skyrocket, creating unprecedented congestion. Expand the size of every person in the commuter train or subway to the size of a car, and the congestion would even overwhelm the counter-effects of carpooling and platooning. As car companies have transformed to mobility companies, and as ride-sharing companies have modeled other arrangements, it has become clear that fleets of cars are a better way to organize this new technology. A number of mobility experiments have also taken this form. The goal is to reduce what are called vehicle miles traveled, VMTs, the number of miles traveled by all vehicles on the road. Organizing the AVS in fleets at first seems to drastically decrease the number of cars needed. And with no need to pay for the labor of drivers, AV fleets initially appear to reduce the cost of travel as well. Point three, but there is yet another boomerang effect. The decreased costs draw more riders and more congestion. Larger cities are already experiencing this increased congestion because riders are choosing the convenience of ride-sharing companies. Congestion pricing and carpooling, implemented in an attempt to control that congestion, would again point to a need for a high-capacity form of transportation, like transit. If driverless cars increase productivity by allowing passengers to work while traveling, and if there is then less incentive to shorten the commute, AVS might also encourage sprawl, again resulting in more vehicle miles traveled. The dream of the autonomous ride might mean traveling for longer periods of time to accomplish more far-flung errands, like a slow network of horizontal elevators.
Whether or not AVS exacerbates sprawl, sprawl already exists. Even if AVS could be perfectly synchronized to function with optimized efficiency, they do nothing to change the widely dispersed itineraries of households in the urban periphery that already rack up many miles of travel. Nor is there any mechanism in place to generate revenues for repairs and upgrades to existing highways that constitute the other half of this transportation network. When the magic bullet boomerangs, the optimistic projections turn to more dire predictions of increased congestion, emissions, and sprawl, the smart vehicle stuck in a dumb traffic jam.4 But the modern response to this traffic jam is to look for relief in the next emergent technology. And within automated transport, the persistent dreams often involve things like futuristic flying cars and personal rapid transit, PRT. In PRT organizations, cars gang up to become a train, which then separates to deliver passengers to individual destinations. In Airmis, or the love of technology, Bruno Latour wrote about Airmis, a PRT system planned for Paris in the 1970s and 80s. Despite repeated failures of the technology, scientists continued to believe that it would work. Latou exercised his actor network theory to demonstrate that scientists were considering only selected interactions that reinforced their preconceptions. Writing what he called science fiction, he portrayed the researchers as characters under the spell of a blinding romance with the technology. Point five in fictions about that smart city, the automated vehicle is also now a stock prop, a data gathering machine for a world in which data is treated as the only information of consequence. Data is the language in which information can exist. It can be stacked and quantified like other metrics. It can support economic, legal, or technological variables that galvanize confidence. Computing software and hardware are treated as the carriers of innovation. Possibilities for potential problem-solving and data-gathering with the senses of an Internet of Things is powerfully tantalizing as a chance to have the right answers about urbanism. Urban software's attempt to explain complexity in ways that reduce that complexity or make ownership of the city available to those who can pay for the data. In just one example, MIT City Form Lab has developed an urban network analysis toolbox claiming that the complex built environment can be reduced to three basic elements, links, nodes, and buildings. This observation allows them to develop a number of metrics, the reach, closeness, or betweenness, metrics that can assist in locating a business, explaining traffic patterns or the value of land in different parts of a city. 6. The smart city maintains the shine of the new, even though its software and devices may centralize information in a network that is more crude in disposition, and even though it may be used to compromise privacy and free speech. An artificial intelligence can automate this urban surveillance. It would be difficult to improve on many of the smart city technologies as tools to support more superbugs of authoritarian power, whether these are political regimes, mobility companies, or ambitious digital platforms like Amazon, Google, and Facebook. In modern dreams, a lumpy world threatens to bog down the purity or freedom of a technological advance. And while these dreams may promote the libertarian decentralization of power, they often concentrate power and control in yet another closed loop. Even among the most discerning critiques of smartness in all its forms, the powerful modern fear of the old hat continues to hold sway. The critique must be a dark sci-fi dystopia, which is ideally accompanied by just a little irresistible newness or futurism. It must still demonstrate its currency in the new and be accessorized by digital platforms, popularizing social media, blockchains, or data visualization.
Ideas will not burst upon the scene, take hold, or sell books unless they are portrayed as the lone, leading idea standing atop the high-altitude peak. Finally, it is so much easier to conform to a default desire for the radical. 2. In medium design, to consider only digital data as information is to exclude most of the information that a city exchanges. Like the situated values discussed in the previous chapter, spatial arrangements embody actions and latent potentials. These social, economic, environmental, and political potentials constitute heavy information. Organizations of all kinds become more robust when they do not parse information with a single language, whether that language is lexical, digital, or mathematical. And they are information-rich because of the coexistence rather than the succession of technologies. Most prized is not the newness of technologies but the relationships between them. Information theory and urban space have long been intertwined. But the default search for solutions or codifications has perhaps overwhelmed the wealth of possibilities available from this perspective. Consider a few historical and contemporary examples. In the death and life of great American cities, Jane Jacobs attacked the planning bombast that replaced large swaths of complex urban fabric with highways and monovalent housing projects in the mid-20th century. She argued for granular inductive thinking about the city's organized complexity, a term developed within information theory and adopted by biological sciences. Point seven for Jacobs, master planning was often like a game of pool, pool again, where you only deal with statistical averages about how the balls will move rather than fully accounting for the dense complexity of all their interaction. She argued that as planning quantifies solutions, it discards the particular, unaverage, and most vital information as statistically inconsequential. Although they were not quantifiable, Jacobs thought that the city was composed of unexamined, but obviously intricately interconnected, and surely understandable, relationships, eight yet even as Jacobs critiqued one closed loop, perhaps her own prescriptive sense of the city as an organic whole made her susceptible to appropriation from other closed loops nine both libertarian and neo-traditional movements have co-opted her work. Perhaps most notably, the new urbanism movement has adopted her as a mascot. New urbanists have the answer to urbanism. Their congresses have adopted a somewhat dogmatic charter of rules and pledges. And, while considerate of urban relationships, their designs often advocate for historically styled urban fabric, information in shape and outline, as a means of carrying the important codes for urban interactivity. Point 10 In another example, Christopher Alexander, a mathematician turned architect and urban guru, argued in 1965 that the city is not a tree an arrangement governed by a single master planning logic that organizes all components as branches from a single trunk. Instead, he observed the city to be a collection of interdependent interactions, this effect makes the newsrack and the traffic light interactive, the newsrack, the newspapers on it, the money going from people's pockets to the dime slot, the people who stop at the light and red papers, the traffic light, the electric impulses which make the lights change, and the sidewalk which the people stand on form a system. They all work together. Point 11 But Alexander critiqued solutionist thinking by offering another superior solution, again trading one conceptual loop for another. For Alexander, the city was not a tree, but an overlapping branching network called a semilattice. His followers have been drawn into a somewhat spiritualized practice, guided by lengthy tomes and numeric calculations. 
Alexander's modeling of conditional relationships in space may have benefited the art of coding more than the art of urban form making. Point 12, but rather than trying to quantify or codify the organization or appearance of an urban arrangement, return to the information generated in interplay. Referencing the logics of networks and circuits, social scientist and cybernetician Gregory Bateson also arguably looked for homeostasis in networks and regarded information as the elementary particle in a holistic view of the world. But, it is important to note that he shifted the idea of information from the nominative to the active register when he simply stated that information is the difference that makes a difference. 13. Information is not only a message in a particular language, or a mass of data to be stacked and quantified. It is not a thing, but the registration of change. It is not content but activity. Action is information. Again placing information in an active register, Gregory Bateson argued, the concept switch is of quite a different order from the concepts of stone, table, and the like. T, he switches not except at the moments of its change of setting, and the concept switch has thus a special relation to time. It is related to the notion change rather than to the notion object. 14A switch, like the differential gears in a motor, is not an object but a delta or a registration of change that constitutes information. That change can be present in the interplay between anything. Bateson observed that a man, a tree, and an axe are part of an information exchange. Point 15 Similarly, while using digital tools in complex economic formulations, contemporary physicist Cesar Hidalgo recognizes embodied information in networks of urban solids. 16 Referencing Michael Polanyi, he insists, know-how is different from knowledge because it involves the capacity to perform actions, which is tacit. Hidalgo looks for the accumulation of information in solids, and the ability of matter to compute. He writes, I, information is not restricted to messages. It is inherent in all the physical objects we produce, bicycles, buildings, street lamps, blenders, hair dryers, shoes, chandeliers, harvesting machines, and underwear are all made of information. This is not because they are made of ideas but because they embody physical order. Our world is pregnant with information. It is not an amorphous soup of atoms, but a neatly organized collection of structures, shapes, colors, and correlations. Such ordered structures are the manifestations of information. Point 17 The idea of newness and succession may be quite dumb, and if the intention is to make cities more information-rich, newness forecloses on that richness. Even digital platforms themselves become information-rich, not because of essential singular pathways, but because of the presence of messy redundancies. Not homeostasis but imbalance, not fixed pools of information but mixtures of many species of information, including the physical, heavy information of urban space, provides a wealth of potential to disrupt culture's closed loops and provide a check on the power of digital superbucks. Rather than declaring the digital to be a dominant technology of innovation, it is the space where technologies interact that may be the real medium of innovation. It is the interplay between technologies that generates information, and it is the quality of their entanglements that signals more or less sophistication. 3. The following interplay considers switching between emergent and incumbent technologies in the transportation landscape. Like Bateson's switch, design within this vast spatial informational network does not attempt to fix, quantify, or codify. The switch is an example of an interplay that is deliberate with regard to its intentions to connect and to confound monocultures, but indeterminate about all the values that will pass through it over time. 
the switch's like Polonese hunch, the cyclist's rebalancing turn, or the shot that the pool player takes within the entire complex of possibilities. Without knowing that, a switching interplay allows the designer to intentionally inflect an organization with some know-how about making that organization more information-rich. As mentioned in the previous chapter on latent activity, you can read the different potentials or dispositions manifest in two segregated networks as opposed to two networks that interact by way of a switch. And you can read the potential scale of any change to populations of vehicles that, as rampant multipliers, have formatted so much space in the world. At several junctures in the projections about automated vehicles, the size or bulk of objects in space interferes with all of the spectacular projections about the technology, foiling the quest for mobility as autonomous and emancipatory. But rather than responding with flying cars, a non-modern response might look not only to innovative technologies but also to innovative relationships between technologies and urban space. While typically vying to be the dominant platform that replaces all others, modes of transportation arguably work best in concert. Just as the greatest impacts of computing technologies come from the way they rewire social habits, the greatest impact of transportation technologies may come from the way they rewire cities. Switching between fleets of automated vehicles and transit as well as between transit, automated vehicles, and cycling or walking create some mutually beneficial interdependencies. Switching can rewire an existing transit station, it can sponsor a new architectural volume in urban space, or it can generate any number of intermodal nodes where passengers upshift or downshift between low-capacity vehicles and high-capacity transit. Point 18 Consider a transit stop in the suburbs. It might have a low ridership for several reasons. Potential riders cannot drive their car to the stop and leave it in a parking lot because it is needed for other purposes throughout the day. Or the train does not take riders to their final destination on the other end of the journey, where they will once again need a car. Faced with these options, a commuter might drive their car from door to door. If that commuter has a family, they would ideally have several cars and drivers to accomplish several such door-to-door -door journeys. If automated vehicles, even fleets of them, are used for these journeys, transit ridership would decrease, and automated vehicle congestion would increase, making both networks less viable. But if that transit stop provides the means to switch between fleets of AVS, transit, and cycling, all three components become reagents in a chemistry that potentially redoubles efficiencies. At a point of switching, AVS and transit become more viable because AVS deliver increased ridership to transit, and transit delivers riders to mobility companies who already fear the waste of circulating empty cars. Fleets of AVS also serve any number of trips that would require a household to own multiple vehicles at rush hours. In the morning, a suburban commuter can walk or take an AV to the nearest switch, upshift to transit, arrive in town, and walk or take another AV to the office. What had been a two-car household can use the convenience of AVS not to clock the highway but to get to the switch and upshift to transit for an even quicker, hands-free ride. Other family members can organize their trips to work or school in a similar way. And, on either end of the trip, any of these riders can arrive at a switch and downshift instead of upshift. The commuter can take a bicycle from an urban switch to the office or, on the way home, change clothes at the switch and jog or cycle the last mile home. The switch close to home might be in the commuter rail station, or it might be a smaller neighborhood substation. 
If these switches are also generous urban volumes that concentrate errands and busy itineraries, the whole assembly begins to finally reduce emissions, sprawl, and vehicle miles traveled. The switch is potentially more convenient if it responds to the intensity of morning and evening rush hours and consolidates primary repetitive trips, the place for food shopping, exercise, lessons, sports practice, day care, and school. Each activity provides sustaining foot traffic for the others. Parents ride facing the children they picked up from school or day care. Even those accustomed to door-to-door -door travel might find new efficiencies in cycling home armed with dinner. Mobility researchers already favor a diversity of particles in streets and places of passage, buses, cars, AVS, bicycles, and pedestrians, because it is that mixture that begins to generate more convenience. In that light, a single low-capacity car as a mode of transportation, while associated with speed, is actually slow and retrograde. Mobility is not about the autonomous freedom of individual rides but rather about capacity, access, speed, and other pleasures of entanglement. Because the car has been such a powerful multiplier, switching may have other ramifying effects on the shape of cities and suburbs. The household that previously needed two or more cars now potentially needs no car. The car formatted the suburban landscape, generating wide roads, large turning radii, driveways, and 20 by 20 foot garages attached to each house. But a switching interplay has the capacity to shrink hard surfaces and eliminate the need for garages. Land that was once hardscape can be put to different uses, and houses can be revalued for reusable square footage. The neighborhood also now has a new component, a switch within walking or biking distance from every house that can contain a number of programs to serve households. And automated vehicles might be passing through cities with less traffic or parking and more green space. Switching might also address inequality, race, disability, and other cultural divides embedded in urban space. Transit systems are typically routed to serve more affluent neighborhoods, meaning that travel times for those who live in poorer areas are too long on a good day and impossible on a day with other difficulties. But AVS can travel anywhere to penetrate areas underserved by buses or light rail. They can streamline the really difficult transfers and wait times that some commuters currently face. And if the switch takes the form of a physical space, it can be a more robust and inclusive place for the cultural mixtures that generate diversity as well as social and economic cohesion. Beyond the possibility of reducing congestion, emissions, and sprawl, this interplay demonstrates the potentially dramatic impact afforded by a shift in relationship rather than merely a shift in technology. Interplay alone suddenly alters many spatial landscapes and transportation potentials. If the interplay between AVS and transit delivers sufficient volumes to create economies of scale, a chief marker of inequality, the cost of mobility, is potentially redressed. And the interdependence between private mobility companies and public transit delivers revenue to public coffers for transportation services, maintenance, and innovation. Even now, vehicle fleets of the ride-sharing economy might rehearse switching organizations with the view to better transitioning employment and liability as mobility is automated. With its concentration of businesses and services, the switch might compensate for lost jobs in the taxi and ride-sharing businesses. While there are many imponderables about automation and liability, with switches and vehicle fleets, liability issues at least resemble familiar forms, like those for trains and elevators. Point 19 By concentrating businesses and errands, the switch can be a public institution, but it can also be a real estate organ.
with real estate revenues from its train stations, Japan Railways Group, for instance, has been able to impeccably maintain and upgrade its system while also funding research and development in technologies like maglev trains. Transit organizations around the world are sitting on large amounts of land that is only used for parking, but AVS require much less space. Transit stations make some money from parking, but if that space can be converted to the space of a switch and filled with retail and business opportunities, it can return much larger revenues to support desperately needed maintenance as well as other transportation innovations of all sorts. But imagine how it will all go wrong, as it surely will. It is not difficult to see how the switching configuration could even lead to a refreshed, super-insulated super-bug. Imagine toxic hybrids of real estate engines and utilities, massive accumulations of power and data, surveillance nightmares, and stratified forms of service like the fast lanes proposed for an internet that abandons net neutrality. Infrastructure histories, related to everything from rail to hydroelectricity to broadband, are filled with stories about networks that might have provided greater access and mobility but were instead strangled with choke points or monopolies. While switching organizations could surely be gained to facilitate this abuse, they also potentially establish interdependencies that might act as checks and balances against concentrations of power. The introduction of multiple players and forces into the equation means that it cannot be exclusively passed by data or money. There are other solids and forces that productively throw sand into the machine to generate safeguards against comprehensive control. One major source of counterbalancing or leveraging power over real estate or mobility companies is ridership, large populations of consumers and revenue for improvements, that only transit can deliver. It is not just that a public entity might have the upper hand or that the arrangement might be a more transparent way to maintain crumbling highway infrastructures and bring transit up to global standards. Like the cooperative land ownership that found value in a spatial relationship, the switch can be a powerful spatial engine or differential that organizes capital and politics rather than the other way around. And it has amplifying effects that give it scale. With powers beyond the master plan or solution, an interplay can also introduce a changing set of checks and balances. A network of switches can be constantly adjusted, like dams in a fluvial network or circuits in an electrical network. Like the relentless superbugs of power, interplay, in its extended temporal dimension, can evolve partnerships and bargains with any number of players. In this medium design exercise, switching is not like establishing a single thing or a one-time solution but is, instead, like orchestrating an activity or inserting a delta that influences how many things will change or interact over time. It is an approach to interplay between digital, spatial, and human networks that potentially offers more information, choice, and equity. It is not about fixing positions but, rather, releasing relational potentials. The outcome is indeterminate and unfolding. Still, with deliberate intent and explicit means, it is possible to inflect potentials in urban circulation spaces. Switching configurations can bring together many strands of infrastructure while consolidating destinations, fortifying ridership, fostering diversity, and organizing investment during a transition in transportation technologies. The switch is carried in a spatial medium that can change dispositions without declaring its political leanings. Without waiting for the legislation of ideal political circumstances, it can silently work to counter inequality and climate change. 
If medium design is something like playing pool, the current array of transportation circumstances, already unsustainable, presents opportunities to take a shot. 4. Since persuasions about autonomy and freedom in transportation are deeply ingrained, designing the cultural narratives that accompany the entanglements of switching may be especially important. But in a world that largely relies on visual evidence, how do you communicate the activities of a differential or a switch that resists representation? And in a contemporary culture that associates innovation with new digital technologies, products, and software platforms to be packaged in startup cliches, how does medium design demonstrate that a spatial relationship is the innovative invention? Some visions of the new mobility landscape are remarkably anachronistic. Emotional music accompanies an ad for a Renault concept car called SYMBIOZ, four people ride facing one another in an AV that is the family car. They are having fun. There is a passionate kiss between a man and woman in the car, but there is also a teenage girl and a younger brother. The AV is all alone on a wooded road that eventually becomes the driveway to their secluded modernist mansion. The car enters the house, doors open, and, with the ease that attends privilege, the four pile into the house. The teenager transfers her phone watching from a seat in the car to a seat on the couch in the spectacular house. Meanwhile, the car ascends in a car elevator to be displayed on the roof as the camera pans up to an aerial view of the house in a green clearing surrounded by Forest Point 20 Elon Musk, inventor of PayPal, Tesla electric cars, SolarCity, SpaceX, and Hyperloop, is transparent about his storytelling. A recent SpaceX launch sent into orbit a cherry-red Tesla Roadster convertible driven by a spacesuited mannequin with the radio playing David Bowie's Space Oddity because, as Musk says, silly and fun things are important. 21 Hyperloop, like another flying car solution to congestion, proposes to shoot pods of freight or passengers at supersonic speeds on a cushion of air in an underground tube. It is projected as a link between Los Angeles and San Francisco, even while a high-speed rail project is underway between the two cities. The first underground tube, dubbed by a company that Musk named The Boring Company, is already deemed to be slow, even with test cars, and it would be impossibly congested in regular traffic. But, with startup swagger, Musk describes the project as a way to revolutionize cities and get rid of soul-destroying traffic. 22 other narratives circulating in the transportation landscape are more insidious. Using the old superbug trick of co-opting and inverting an ideological message, oil company lobbies in the United States often oppose funding for transit, perversely spinning it as an unaffordable luxury of big government. Automated vehicles alone are the future of transportation, they argue, as they look for their own big, government funding to repair a crumbling highway network. In a stunning example of the trick, the oil billionaire Koch brothers funded a group called Americans for Prosperity, who likened light rail to the diamond-encrusted Rolex watch of transportation. Point 23 Against all odds, superbucks can maintain an audience for these tired persuasions. It does not seem to matter that the disposition on the ground is wildly different from the story. Superbugs attach the idea of a corrupt, self-enriching luxury to the transportation networks that most broadly serve the public, while they attach the idea of freedom to a form of transportation that traps its riders in traffic. Fire and water may be licking at the tires, but drivers will still be facing forward, gripping the wheel, and listening to the theme music of soft, focus car commercials. An ideological activist can fight against these attitudes about energy and mobility by protesting environmental deregulation or advocating for a retightening of emissions standards. 
and it is crucial that legislation cuts fossil fuel subsidies and incentivizes alternative renewable energy sources. Those initiatives can continue to work against concentrations of power that protect the status quo. But activism that hopes to have compounding effects at a moment of climate emergency may need additional forms of storytelling that seem, at first, to run counter to ideological goals. The switch is a spatial engine that potentially leverages capital to do something it does not want to do and does not know how to do, reduce emissions, sprawl, and vehicle miles traveled while increasing diversity. Cultural narratives might have to entice these companies by playing on their own greed. Oil and mobility companies lobbying against transit in favor of loose organizations of AVS are arguably proposing to kill the golden goose. Rather than hoping that all money's own big government will fund more highway space for heavy, low-capacity cars, or rather than trying to steal crumbs from transit budgets, the most self-serving mobility companies might spot the undervalued spaces lying at the crossroads of different modes of transportation. The overwhelming real estate capacities associated with these concentrated nodes of exchange may be excellent bait. But it is also crucial to renovate the ways that culture characterizes innovation. Conference room PowerPoint presentations, architectural renderings of the money shot, and bureaucratic planning meetings do not work. Neither do upbeat start, up cliches, elevator pitches, and TED talks, with their promise of rational problem solving and jaw dropping results. And designing interplay does not necessarily associate with preferred props of innovation, like new technologies. Spatial variables and the indexes measuring relationships between these variables may be as crucial to global governance as law or policy. But what might be the persuasion for interplays that operate on latent potentials and should not always work? And how might they bypass official and professional customs to capture attention in popular culture? Medium design has the difficult task of creating a taste for interplay. There are fresh aesthetic pleasures to explore in the adjustable, time-lapse changing of spatial conditions. The communications may be visual but not solely reliant on the visual. They may be cinematic. They may be another form invented for popular entertainment, like the countless videos that enthrall simply because they record a process such as planting a garden, cooking a meal, or repairing an object requiring some practical know-how that unfolds over time. With a sideways move into other forms of communication, if there is any hope of prying the individually owned car away from consumers, switching would also have to invert pop culture scripts about the glamour, autonomy, and freedom with which cars are associated. The messages of car commercials have managed to create a contagion that has utterly changed the urban landscape. To overcome the sense that switching is a disruption to the dream of seamless travel, stories might portray it as a fresh desire, the pleasure and luxury of diversity and urbanity. However impure, this sly form of activism might still be a deliberate instrument to manipulate habits and routines in a way that has measurable spatial consequences. Like the activists for Chile's No campaign, do transportation activists have the savvy or the stomach for designing these alternative soft-focus ads? As the place that synchronizes the family errands, the switch might be a stage for relieved parents and emotional meetings. Or, switching may link to cultural scripts about exertion, cycling, running, or walking the last mile. The same muscular sexiness associated with ads for athletic clothing and equipment might be the ploy of mobility companies. Switching offers the seduction of facing other people or the pleasure of accomplishing something with your hands while in transit. 
imagine the self-congratulation regarding not only personal but also environmental health. Working on all these fronts, the switch could prompt a story about a release from the slowness of autonomy into the speed and richness of entanglement. Interlude 4. Shakespeare's Richard III presents another classic puzzle about runaway authoritarian power, another political superbug that somehow seems unstoppable. At the beginning of the play, against all odds, every obstacle seems to dissolve as the Duke of Gloucester ascends to the throne. No one stops him as he commits one after another thinly veiled murder to clear the way. One of the most implausible steps in this progress occurs in Act 1, Scene 2. The Duke encounters Lady and in a funeral procession to bury King Henry VI. Richard has murdered the king as well as the king's son, Lady and husband, but he manages to seduce her within minutes. The scene uncovers some of the mechanisms that ensure the durable success of so much of the spatially embodied violence explored in this book. Brute force and an immediate threat of violence at the first moment of the encounter is only partially responsible for Richard's success. Lady Anne is surrounded by all the gentlemen in the procession, and the Duke stops its progress by threatening to kill anyone who does not submit. But Anne fearlessly protests and, with grisly descriptions, publicly declares that Richard is a murderer. Still, despite the strength of her resistance and her full-throated indictment, he is successful in conquering her. Richard arguably manages not declarations but dispositions in this seduction. The facts about his murdering are repeatedly re-declared, but they make no difference to the ways that Richard will handle the situation. The world of declarative sense obligingly occupies only a portion of all the available space of operations, leaving an overabundance of maneuvering room for those who know how to work with dispositions. Richard does not have to prove his innocence or make and feel affection for him. Those are the levers of law and storybooks. By his own account, Richard is physically misshapen and unappealing, and an expresses her repulsion. It works to his favor that his appearance inverts all the normative, reasonable terms of encounter. Richard flatters Lady Anne, but flattery alone might have only made him more repulsive. More effective is Richard's calm, almost submissive statement of being so smitten with love that he must take and to bed. By going too far too fast, he begins the shock, faint, and parry to provoke her and put her on the back foot. It is the drop of catalyst that transposes the encounter to an active register. Now, information will be carried in actions and disposition rather than in words. Shakespeare, like any actor, is constantly playing with the discrepancy between the spoken lines and the action being played. Actors know how to speak the line, I love you, while playing an action that rejects love. Richard is not speaking his lines to accurately depict conditions in the court, but rather to activate and channel the energies of other characters to do his will. Richard is speaking of love, but what he is doing is drawing Anne into a fight. Lady Anne is insulting Richard, but what she is doing is also running counter to what she is saying. Richard answers her back by adopting the rhythms of her speech. And picks up the same rhythms, and the speeches of both characters synchronize. As actions start to decouple from words, it does not matter that Anne is vilifying Richard. Declarative information is not important. The consequential information in this exchange is carried in actions, as an engages in an escalating back and forth with him. As is often the case when the superbug manipulates disposition, fighting is capitulation. If Anne had also been manipulating dispositions, and doing it quickly enough, she might have outmaneuvered Richard. 
she might have acquired a multiplier in the crowd of gentlemen who stood in witness. Or she might have put Richard off balance by startling him with obsequious gentility or even her own attempts at seduction. But Richard is already on to his next trick. Successful dissemblers often mirror and double their opponent by preemptively accusing them of the crime for which they themselves are charged. Because Richard is the murderer, he invites and to kill him with his own sword, casting her in the role of murderer that he occupies. With the blade positioned over his own heart, suddenly and appears to be in power. But in the register of disposition, everything is turned upside down. Not only does fighting constitute capitulation, but while and holds the sword over Richard, she is really holding it over her own heart. She must calculate her own survival in the court. She is alone, with no husband or protector. Now, even the fact that she is surrounded by gentlemen plays into Richard's hands. And was not frightened to attack him when she first encountered him. But if she killed him with so many people present, hers would be the only murder that anyone actually witnessed. Those who had been wronged would be the only ones punished. Richard deftly makes murder environmental, a surrounding medium from which it is difficult to escape. If and chooses to stay alive under Richard's powerful protection, then he has made her complicit in the same sorts of ambitions he had for himself. Again, in this inverted world, by not murdering, she becomes another murderer, another ally for Richard, along with all of those who stood by, watching. When she cannot plunge the sword, Richard finds the end of her argument and wins. The move to arm her disarms her. And also conveniently reinforces the observation that being right is not necessary being righteous, just, or innocent. It often means joining and reinforcing the safety of the closed loop. Richard's seduction of Anne, although seemingly impossible, is not only easy for him, it is completely common and hardly a mystery. It is a scene played out repeatedly, even daily on the political stage. It is the traditional method for gaining totalitarian control over nations and empires, just as it is the method for gaining petty power in any puny hierarchy. But might it also model any environmental violence in which most of the players find themselves helpless to act with any conventional form of resistance?